0: I'm here with uh, Dennis Wise, Dr. Dennis Wise, from uh, from the University of Arizona. He's a lecturer in the, the writing program there, and has also published uh, extensively in um, science fiction, fantasy, and um, 20 and 21st century British and American literature. And so, Dennis, you've written quite a few articles, um, sort of looking at Tolkien and Tolkien mm-hmm. studies and... Various elements of Tolkien's um, Tolkien's work. So I suppose let's just just begin by by talking briefly about uh, your experience with Tolkien. So you know, wh- when did you first get into Tolkien? Was it sort of as a child with sort of the Hobbit, the you know the getting read a Hobbit as a child kind of story that a lot of people have, or did you come to Tolkien later? Or
1: <laughs> I actually did come to him late. I read The Hobbit a couple yeah. times in grade school and middle and high school i like the hobbit Mm -hmm. but i think i tried and failed to read lord of the rings twice in high school um i I never got past bombadil um i actually (laughs) forced myself to read the whole thing when i was like 22 and i didn't like it much um but then i liked it read it again when i was 30 and i was like oh this is this is pretty cool well, it's odd because it's, I always liked fantasy literature. That's all I read. Mm. It's just that I mm. somehow never got into Tolkien until really late. Yeah,
0: that's really interesting because yeah, usually, well, usually people will will um you know have this sort of childhood. It seems there seems to be something about childhood and Tolkien and you know the Hobbit and and uh, but that's a really interesting story there. What sort of struck you as interesting about the Lord of the Rings when you were thirty that perhaps you hadn't seen when you were twenty two? Um, I suppose. Getting past Bombadil, maybe that was. Part of it, I suppose. <laughs> well, that, that um, did
1: help. That did help.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. No,
1: it, it's just when I was older, I. Th- this mm. is when I was in the middle of my graduate work, and I would actually yes. taken yeah. classes in medieval literature, and I was actually seeing what he was doing. So yeah. you know, as a as strong as an emotional response, people tend to have the token. I was really interested by the intellectual things that he was doing, um, mm. and the more <laughs> I studied him, the more interesting that he got. So. I always knew when I went to grad work, I wanted to work in fantasy because that was my favorite genre. But mm. I then focused on Tolkien because he's obviously the grandfather and things. And, you know, the more medievalism I learned about, um, the more interesting things I saw that he was actually doing in Lord of the Rings. Yeah,
0: you yeah, know, that's, that's really interesting. And I think that, that that interest in some of Tolkien's, as you say, intellectual side, as it were, comes through in, in your papers. Just out of interest, what were some of the other fantasy writers or, or authors that you were interested in sort of earlier on?
1: Uh, well, my all-time favorite was Stephen Donaldson. I read The Chronicles of Trump's Covenant mm-hmm. when I was really young. Didn't like them the first time I read those either, but I read them again in high school and I, they just kind of blew me away. Um, I was a really big fan of Glenn Cook. Which is he's okay, not the yeah. most famous of the fantasy writers of the 80s and 90s, but he's just something. He's somebody who really does it for me. So Donaldson, Glenn Cook, yeah. Ursula Le Guin. Um, yeah. These are just, for me some of the classics.
0: Le Guin is yeah a favorite of mine as well. Did you um did you read Martin? Um, I know my my co-host for this podcast. You know we we sort of talk a little bit about Martin because he's um. He was reading them in the 90s, you know, before the show. Um, so did you ever get into that, or was that sort of a, you know, not, not, not something of interest to you?
1: Well, uh, yeah. Actually, you know, you're going to detect, detect detect a theme here. I read them again in grad school <laughs> for and Martin for the first time. Because yes. there, there was about 10 right, or 15 yeah. years where I stopped reading fantasy. I slowly got back mm, into mm. it. And I read the first mm-hmm. two books for The Song of Ice and Fire. I did not like them. And right, I only read yes. them just... Because I was bored with my actual graduate work. Then I read a plot (laughs) summary of book Mm -hmm. three in The Song of Ice and Fire. And I read about the Red Wedding. And it was the Mm. first time that a plot summary actually made me drop my jaw um, when I got (laughs) to the Red Wedding part. So I started rereading it, um, book three. And then I realized that I was just really reading his books really, really badly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I had a kind of like um, a chip on my shoulder about, about what how good fantasy was um, and that his mm. fantasy wasn't very good. And, you know, I realized I had a very wrong opinion about it. And so that made me pay attention to things like what sort of expectations do we bring to texts when we okay. read them? Yeah. And that kind of the way for some of the research I've done for why people generally, generally despise fantasy because I, I was kind of one of those people after because I had stopped reading fantasy mm-hmm. for about 10 or 15 years
0: yes yeah yeah I think um I think I'm still perhaps in that place with Martin. I mean, I have read through the books up to where they are, um you know mm-hmm. currently, which is I think the last one was two thousand eleven, so it's been quite a while <laughs> yeah i i'm I'm not really a fan of his um his written stuff, uh so I don't know maybe I need to get over that bias as well, but anyway we'll we'll see how we go in the if the next book he can be he's, he's very grim, which is well yes, yeah,
1: yeah, tough yeah. for some people. Though. Some people just just like sure. the grimness.
0: Sure. All right. So going back to, to Tolkien, of course, which is the, the main sort of topic for for today and for this podcast, of course. So we're going to look at sort of just a couple of your um, your papers, which you know I thought were really interesting. And as I said, you've written quite a few of them. So you know, I'd recommend listeners you know look Dennis up on. Um, on Google or whatever and, and you can find a few uh, links to, to papers and, and I'll ask you later of course where where people might be able to find uh, some more of them but today I just wanted to look at a couple and um, the first one I, I wanted to sort of have a think about was published earlier this year in the Journal of Tolkien research and for those interested this is a this is a, a free journal you don't have to go through a, an academic library or anything uh, all the papers are available for anyone to um, to find online on the, the website so I, again, I'd highly recommend you know going and having a look if you're interested in in doing so. This is a fairly new journal. I think it's been around for two or three years, but it started publishing some you know really interesting stuff and some really quality stuff. So you know it's it's a great it's a great new new location for um for academic Tolkien studies. So this this paper is called uh, "On Ways of Studying Tolkien: Notes Towards a Better Epic Fantasy Criticism," with "Epic" in parentheses. Yeah, you know there are so many fascinating pieces. Um, this this article. I mean, uh, for the fir- in in the first case, it's just a great summary of the state of the art, as it were, and also the history of of um, of Tolkien studies in a general sense. Also, the place of what's been called capital T theory. That was a really useful part of the article. And then you also go on to sort of suggest a new way of or a new approach to, to studying fantasy and I suppose Tolkien, uh, which is um, which looks at strauss um leo strauss and straussianism and i'm going to ask you about that later because being an australian i feel like straussianism is this very american thing i'm, I'm not quite sure what it is or what it refers to i know it's got something to do with sort of the the secret meaning of texts or something like that <laughs> but i'm going uh, to ask that is you about one that one
1: aspect to him yeah yeah yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> so it's actually ask, american and, and I, french
1: and chinese is where he's actually okay. the biggest
0: united states right, france and okay.
1: um china at yeah. the moment
0: Right. Okay. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like here he hasn't made too much of an impact anywhere in our sort of philosophy departments or um, mm-hmm. literary departments, but certainly um, it seems to me in America he, he's very big. So I will, I will ask you about that. Um, and that's, that's really, a, you know, a, b- a big part of your, of this, of this piece. You sort of, you argue this might be an interesting way to approach Tolkien. So, you know, we'll get into sort of why that might be. But first of all, I, I want to sort of, Talk a little bit about some of those other aspects. So, I guess just to, to start. So, as I said, it's really a great précis um, on the history and current state of Tolkien studies. So, where do you think, I guess, we are in the field in a general in a general sense? I, you know, Tolkien's been talked about and by by scholars. You know, really since the Lord of the Rings, it, well, since the Hobbit was published, I suppose, mm-hmm. in a sense. And, and um, you know, nowadays, certainly following the the Peter Jackson, the two trilogies, Peter Jackson. Perhaps there was more interest, and books continue to, to be published and, and articles are written. So, yeah, where do you think we are in the field in a, in a general sense, I suppose?
1: Well, it's uh, good news. Uh, the field mm-hmm. is booming right now, honestly. And mm-hmm. Tolkien is easily the most studied author in science fiction and fantasy, and it's, it's not even close. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In terms of the books and articles and journals on a single author – Um, nobody even really compares to Tolkien um, in science fiction and fantasy. And probably a lot of mainstream writers, realist writers as well, don't really compare to how much he gets studied. At the same time, um, for the field of Tolkien studies itself, I do see it as being very Tolkien-centered, which Mm -hmm. might seem odd considering it's called Tolkien studies. Um, (laughs) But what I mean by that is it tends to be concerned first and foremost with Tolkien himself, his biography, Mm -hmm. his works, his immediate historical context, uh, that sort of thing. And that's a little bit in contrast to the field of science fiction and fantasy studies, which tends to see Tolkien as relatively conservative. He's class conscious. He's anti-modern. He's uncomfortably regressive and so on. And so they might give a lot of lip service to the importance of Tolkien, he doesn't really figure into any of their critical paradigms at all. So he's kind of like a marginalized in that sense within SFF studies, um, as opposed to token studies where he's very, very central.
0: For sure. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll sort of ask you a bit about that uh, as well. Cause I think that was, that was an interesting part of your, your paper. I, I wasn't aware of um, sort of the, yeah, the uh, apprehension that, that SF scholars um, you know, have or, or had at least towards talking, I suppose we can go there now, I suppose. Um, why do you think that is? And, and you, perhaps you gestured towards that. There's sort of a political in, in, incompatibility perhaps, but um, what's motivating that, uh, well, intense dislikes, you know, occasionally, <laughs> do you think? Um, um.
1: So I think one of the big reasons that, um, I, I think the loudest science fiction critics um, it, partly it has to do with the way the genre is developed um, or the, the way science fiction and fantasy have developed themselves over the 20th century now for, especially in the Anglo-American world uh, in the 20th mm. century science fiction has had a much bigger head start than fantasy did um, most of the you know the pulp journals were SF there is a few fantasy ones but nothing really big and mm. As a constant, and nothing really big until the Tolkien boom in the late 60s, that is. And yes, so, for yeah. the century, in terms of the pulp fiction, it was science fiction who took the lead um, yes. as opposed to fantasy. And that kind of meant that academic science fiction criticism developed a whole lot sooner than academic fantasy criticism did. Um, yeah. And so, SF criticism in um, academia started in the 1970s, and what that meant is that a lot of fantasy critics, you know, a few, few in the late 70s, mostly in the 80s, they were not concerned with Tolkien primarily, but they often tended to borrow a lot of theoretical assumptions and presuppositions from academic science fiction criticism, particularly the journal uh, Science Fiction Studies. And by and large, these assumptions were Marxist, historical, and materialist in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what was especially big in the 1970s is that these Marxist science fiction critics of the 70s, people like Darko Suvin and Frederick Jameson, they really had it in for fantasy literature. They, 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 had a, they wrote about as if they had a grudge against it. And I think it was most because they were trying to elevate science fiction as a literary genre – and one of the strategies they used to do that was to contrast it with fantasy which they mm. considered, you know, regressive and reactionary and so forth. So in one sense I think they're trying to elevate the prestige of science fiction by contrasting it with fantasy. Yep. And yeah. And so they can sort of sort of turn this um, to mainstream academics. You tend to previous uh privileged postmodernism and realism and say, hey, science fiction can't be all that bad. It's much theori- more theoretically advanced than fantasy is. Yeah. And by the nineteen eighties, fantasy largely meant Tolkien, so that is where a lot of science fiction animosity to fantasy tended to come, in my view.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really um convincing and interesting. And you know, you give one sort of quote in your your paper, which I can't remember exactly the the um, the critic you're talking about there, but um, he contrasts or well, Tolkien is perhaps contrasted with Samuel Delaney, who's a famous uh, SF writer. Oh yeah, that's Carl Freeman. Sort of right? Yes, yeah. And you know, he sort of makes a comment that Delaney is a cognitive writer and and Tolkien is a supposedly non-cognitive. And I'm not quite sure what this means. And I, I'm sort of reading through Delaney at the moment, in part because haven't done so before and um you know sort of there, there was a few days that that went by um a couple of weeks ago when I sort of read several different there were several different people who made reference to him so I sort of thought oh gosh I should I should actually look look into this mm-hmm. and um you know I'm sort of reading through Dahlgren at the moment I, have you read that <laughs> have you read that one
1: no it's the one I know um, I need. I should read it's, but um, I have not gone through Dahlgren I went through Triton though
0: me. yeah yeah it's um it's very strange, but it's interesting. You know, I'm—I I'm, don't know if enjoying it is the right word, but you know, it's—it's it's, uh, <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I'm getting there. <laughs> um, you
1: know, I—I I have a complicated experience with Delaney as well. Mm, so, unlike okay. Le Guin, who I really love, Delaney mm. just never been one of my favorites, and so I do have a really tough time sympathizing with his work. But he does tend mm. to be really um, put on a pedestal by a lot of SFF critics. Especially like yeah, people yeah. like Carl Freeman. So Freeman is actually in the same tradition as Darko Suvin and Frederick Jameson. So he's very yes. much with their okay. Marxist uh, critical assumptions. And one of the reasons he likes Delaney is because even though Delaney does, does write fantasy, he writes it in a good way, uh, for mm, Freeman.
0: Mm. which apparently right, okay. makes a big and, difference. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose I was interested. Yeah, in this notion of cognitive and what this means does does this does this sort of Seem to imply a political agreement, sort of that there's a there's a fusion between the politics of the critic and the writer, or is there something more that's going on there? Do you think, uh, you know, what 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 is non-cognitive about Tolkien in the, the eyes of these critics? Is it just his politics, for example, or is it is it is it something else?
1: Well, for the for people like Souven and Freeman and Jameson, mm. when you're writing cognitive work, which they consider yep. this science fiction to be. Um, they're saying ooh, science ooh. fiction allegedly works as a form of extrapolation from present conditions, with the intent of criticizing these present conditions. That's considered mm, cognitive. Yeah. It might not actually be possible. Um, so, for example, faster than light travel is not possible, and lightsabers aren't possible. But it's <laughs> at least theoretically possible. On a, it has a scientific veneer to it. It's at least purported yeah, to be possible yeah. if a certain set of science had been has been discovered. Um, mm, mm. So this idea that the future is something that is extrapolated from the present and that it is compatible with modern science, or what a future <laughs> future science might look like, is what cognition means in that case. Fantasy, right, yeah, okay. in contrast is for these critics, they look at fantasy and they say, okay, fantasy is ignoring science because they just want to have books about magic spells and fairies, to put that in (laughs) a little bit, you know, combative way. So that's considered irrational and non-cognitive. They're ignoring science, they're ignoring what we know epistemologically about the modern world and Mm -hmm. saying, let's have magic spells and fairies. But you know, to me, this distinction has never really made a whole lot of sense. Because uh, besides Delaney and Le Guin, there's lots of writers uh, in the pulps in the 20th century who've run, written both science fiction and fantasy. So Paul Anderson, Piers Anthony, Stephen Donaldson, they've all written fantasy as good as their SF. But in yes. theoretical terms, um, for Delaney in particular, what he does is he is one of the f- really few pulp writers out of the New Age, um, um, New Age SF. Um, a new wave SF. Um, He's one of the few writers, he's explicitly Marxist in his writing. He's explicitly Mm. deconstructionist, which in the 70s was very cutting edge. And (laughs) also his status as one of the new wave's first openly queer and African-American writers, I gave him a lot of street cred. So in addition to being really theoretically advanced, he just had a lot of things He was talking about a lot of things that people cared about. So that's why even though Delaney's turned to fantasy and sword and sorcery, you know, in the 80s or so, um, that gave his fantasy a cognitive veneer that these Marxist critics were saying that a lot of Tolkien-based fantasy did not have.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And I I have read a couple of Delaney's sort of more pure, I guess, SF novels like uh, Babel 17 and Nova. And, um, just rereading, I was rereading Babel 17 recently, and I just sort of felt that felt very dated to me, perhaps ironically, given it's, as you say, a sort of cutting edge status, you know, on publication where I, I guess, you know, I'm obviously biased, but I reread Tolkien, and it feels, to use that cliche, kind of timeless. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and you know, look, that's perhaps, you know, stating things a little strongly. Um, I still enjoy his, his, his science fiction, um, do science fiction novels, but, but it, it did, it did feel sort of of its time in a way that Tolkien, uh, you know, still, I guess he still feels of his time, but, um, right. for me at least, you know, has, has more resonance.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And one other thing that's
1: weird about this whole, uh, binary between cogn- cognitive and Non-f- non-cognitive is that even though we have a lot of, um, writers who do science fiction and fantasy, um, that whole the binary doesn't even really apply to Tolkien. Because um, right. in one sense, Middle-earth is a secondary world with no clear connection to the present world and seems to have magical elements to it. That's that's for certain. Mm-hmm. Um, but Tolkien was a philologist. And if you ever looked at his academic writings, um, mm-hmm. philology, philology is an intensely, intensely intellectual and rigorous field of study. And one of the reasons – and he applies that philological knowledge to the Lord of the Rings, especially in the creation Mm -hmm. of Arda and his secondary world. And one of the reasons he got stuck – and so he never published a Cimmerillion or *His Legendary* within his lifetime. And one of the reasons was he kind of got stuck with it. He couldn't really reconcile uh, the mythical worldview being purported in some of the Cimmerillion stories with the scientific worldview that he knew to be true. So, for example,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, his elves were allegedly, so this is later in his career. Um, he thought that elves would be so enlightened that they would never believe in a flat world cosmology. They would, would, always know for the fact that the world was round. Except the problem with that idea was that some of his early stories were very dependent on a flat world cosmology. And so Tolkien really couldn't reconc- um, reconcile the sort of this mythological thinking with the scientific thinking. And that kind of just bogged him down with the legendarium. He ended up never finishing it before he died, um, which is why Christopher Tolkien's had to do so much posthumous work. Um, But Tolkien was a very intensely intellectual writer within his field of philology. And so it always seems Mm. kind of strange to call his work non-cognitive simply because it doesn't accept a modern scientific viewpoint. There's a lot of other cognitive elements to it, but I don't think SF critics ever just wanted to see those aspects to Tolkien.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And um, certainly, Reading some of Tolkien's scholarship. For example, in the recent Beowulf publication, or you know, comparatively recent, I think it came out 2014, some of the the criticism and, and sort of historical philology that, that was included in that publication really shows just how rigorous Tolkien, you know, could be. Um, oh, yeah. as, as a philologist. But just just to return briefly to Tolkien's studies. You know, as a as a field, mm-hmm. you mentioned you mentioned before that you know the field really has a focus on Tolkien the man. And um, I've always found that, you know we, we've perhaps you know gently criticised SF um, critics a little bit, but you know I want I want to come around to criticising Tolkien scholars a little bit here <laughs> because I've always found this myself, just speaking for myself, a little bit disconcerting. Um, because you know it's, it seemed to me that, uh, for example the publication of Tolkien's letters and other statements that he has made, you know, in various places sort of uh, function as kind of holy writ. Um, You know, his interpretations, uh, certainly privileged, um, Mm -hmm. continue to be. And, um, you know, it's often seemed to me that other kind of ways of reading Tolkien, um, and, you know, recently I've noticed, at least anecdotally online, there's this very interesting surge of sort of queer readings of Tolkien, you know, which may appeal to some people and may not appeal to others and that's fine but you know my feeling is that whenever I see a post for example on Twitter or you know is <laughs> always always a great place to go to, to gauge these things I suppose but oh, yeah. you know sort of giving a, a reading like that people will invariably respond you know Tolkien was a Catholic you can't think that you know he said his work was you know fundamentally Catholic and he never intended Sam and Frodo to you know be yeah queer at all mm-hmm. and you will you will you will see these kinds of responses and I just think well first of all I think people should 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 be allowed to sort of have those readings if they if they want and you know i i find some some merit there um I agree yeah me too even myself yeah I think they they're interesting readings and new readings and you know, whilst no one would, whilst no one would 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 deny that Tolkien certainly at the end of his life, when most of the letters, sort of published in in the letters volume, were written. No one would deny that he was quite a devout Catholic. Although I think some some writers like John Garth would want to provide some nuance there, especially sort of in his early life. You know, I, I still think that Tolkien studies, you know, has a tendency to, um, yeah, to centre, as you say, centre the the man and his opinions mm-hmm. a little too forcefully and just a, a small anecdote uh the last sort of podcast for those who have been listening i was talking with my my co-host in the in the mainstream of the, of the podcasts and uh, we were talking about Eldarion and arendus this this story that that tolkien sort of seems to have written in the 60s you know we briefly went on to talk about tolkien as a catholic writer and you know my, my co-host sort of just nonchalantly said you know oh i know tolkien said he's the the Lord of the Rings was a fundamentally catholic work but maybe that's what he wanted to believe and i just thought you know my co-host is a um he he likes fantasy but he's not a heavy Tolkien reader so he's he's a bit of a lighter fan than me i guess okay it was it was nice to just hear a fresh View like that, like you know, maybe maybe we shouldn't just take this at face
1: value. <laughs> yeah. So I and actually, I, would, I would agree with that. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, he yeah. was obviously—I think he, he was obviously very sincere in his faith, but he also mm. really liked northern heroic literature, which was predominantly mm. pagan. And yeah. Yeah. so, one of the more interesting questions is, you know, how do you reconcile a um, reconcile a pagan worldview with a Christian worldview? And the answer is not easily, but I mean, he's come up with a couple of different things. And so, yeah, sure. definitely, if you just take any one statement from his letters and cherry Pickett and see it as completely at face value, like this is a fundamentally Catholic work, it's very easily to complicate that because there's a lot of other aspects to him as well.
0: That's right. Yeah. And I, my feeling, I suppose, to, it's a long winded way for me to get to, <laughs> to a question. But, you know, my, my feeling is that for a lot of Tolkien scholars, had they they heard by my my friend and co-host you know, had they heard that remark, they would have sort of recoiled from it and said, "Well, you know, no, that's that's not true. We have to take Tolkien very seriously." So, I suppose, where do you feel like Tolkien studies can go forward in the in the biographical sense? Should we should we perhaps place less emphasis on him as a man and more on sort of, I guess, reader reception, if you like, <laughs> to use that kind of that kind of jargon, and you know, think less about a bit less about those biographical elements and perhaps make more room for some of these more you know, these new readings that are sort of popular these days?
1: Um, well, in one sense, um, I'll mention a story I uh, read about um, Michael D.C. Drought, who's one of the oh, yes. co-editors mm-hmm. of token studies. And this is an article mm-hmm. he published, I think, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. But he, he mm-hmm. mentioned like one of, the reason, one of the most common reasons people have articles rejected from token studies is because they tend to take token too much of faith's value. They aren't critical enough. Mm-hmm. In their evaluations mm-hmm. and so this is like so this this awareness that you can't just you know take tokens biographical statements at, as holy red is is common at least within you know the most advanced uh token studies in the field um mm-hmm. so there's okay. an element of yeah. criticism there um that seems to be a little bit different from applying what we might call like a theoretical perspective
0: to token mm. okay uh yeah, and for okay. the most
1: part i don't think Tokenists like theory, or in particular, critical theory, um, all that much, which is something I think which is both good and bad. Um, it's good in the sense that, you know, if you look at Tolkien criticism, hoping to find an explanation of what a particular thing in Tolkien is going on. Um, I think Tolkien studies tend to be really good at that. Uh, it's really good at explanation of what's going on either in the text or in a particular reference or a particular literary source or things like that. And that's what it's really, really good at. Um, but the whole point of critical theory, and, there, and critical theory is not all the same, there are a lot of different, very different paradigms, is that theory is really good at asking new questions that were not thought of before about particular texts. And that kind of theoretical is protective is something that Tolkien studies tends not to be very much engaged in. Partly, I think the reason it has to do with just training, uh, a lot of Tolkienists are medievalists. And medievalism is one of those uh, sub-branches of literary studies that has tended to resist theory the strongest, even though in recent years that's kind of been changing. Um, mm-hmm. But more importantly, a lot of Tolkienists, you know, tend to go into the field because they are deeply in love with Tolkien's work, and mm. the critical aspects of theory are not really compatible with a writer whom you're deeply in love with. Um, <laughs> and just as importantly, um, Tolkien, who, who is, you know, I, despite what we've just been saying, he is relatively conservative, he is a Catholic, he's class conscious, he's a monarchist, um, or at least mm. as close as one you're going to find in the 20th century, <laughs> And he just isn't the sort of writer that a lot of these uh, contemporary theoretical paradigms were developed to praise. Um, Mm -hmm. As good as theory is, as is at asking, uh, thinking up new kinds of questions to ask of text, for Tolkien, the answers to the typical questions the theory tends to ask, um, the answers all tend to be negative. Um, and mm-hmm. that same goes for all the many her- errors Tolkien has in modern epic fantasy. And so that's one of my viewpoints where critical theory is something that's both necessary and good. He- it doesn't tend to work well with Tolkien because I think Tolkien mm. was just too different of a writer um, and that the assumptions behind theory just don't know how- what to do with them, basically.
0: Sure. So we kinda need... Yeah, go on. Sorry.
1: Oh, yeah. So we just kind of like need new theoretical paradigms in, w- in order to approach Tolkien and epic fantasy.
0: Sure, sure. And and we'll we'll come to Straussianism in, in a moment. But just before that, I know you're sort of also interested in, in feminist sort of uh, theory. So if we take that as a, an example, do you think that, that for example, approaching Tolkien with a feminist lens? Um, I mean, you know, on, on a sort of a, I don't know, a basic level, if you like, you might just look at The Lord of the Rings and say, oh, there's, you know, few women in it, therefore Tolkien is bad. Um, and you can get that sort of negative reading. Um, but, you know, I've read some pretty interesting and nuanced feminist perspectives on Tolkien um, that don't just sort of churn out sort of a a default negative response um, that are critical, but, but also kind of, you know, thought provoking it. Provoking and interesting, and of course, as I mentioned, we we talked about Aldarion and Arendus in the last podcast, and gosh, there's a lot there, you know, that is that is fascinating from from that point of view. The character of arendis and then and Calame, her daughter, and, and the whole the, the whole perspective that they have towards men, and um, there's a whole yeah, there's a whole interesting discussion to be had about that story you know, from a feminist point of view. But mm-hmm. do you think there's room for capital C capital T critical theory to approach Tolkien in a nuanced? Interesting way, or do you think it's just and and for example, you know, thinking about feminist studies, for example, or do you think that, as you say, it's just not not really the right approach? And and I know in, in this paper that we've been sort of that I've mentioned that we've been talking about, you discuss a couple of, of sort of new new approaches. I think Helen Young, for example, on race and, and and a few others. But um yeah, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, so um that you bring up feminism in particular is an interesting case with Tolkien. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that there have been attempts to read Tolkien, um in light of feminism, uh, feminist theory, but they have tended not, in my view, to be very theoretically informed uh, feminist okay. approaches to Tolkien. So they might talk about his female characters or they might talk about his personal views on women. Um, and that doesn't quite answer the more – Maybe the deeper theoretical issues when it comes to feminism. Now, feminism Mm. is like most critical theories. It's one of those theories where you can't just say the word feminism. There's lots of different kinds. Mm. And so things (laughs) like um, postmodern feminism that's been influenced by Michel Foucault, I think, is very antithetical to what Tolkien is about. Um, And that's basically we're saying, you know, gender is entirely a social construct it's a strong form of social constructivism that denies any agency or power to the idea of nature and mm, i think mm. that's pretty much i mean so in one sense that could be seen as a very progressive and radical view um but it's not something that's really compatible with token because he does kind of believe in uh, a type of essentialism he does believe in a uniform a unified coherent cosmos um with god sort of god at the apex um, a, and he does, in some sense, believe there's a natural place for people within this cosmos, and that's not an assumption that's going to do very well under like um, a postmodern feminist lens. Now,
0: mm-hmm.
1: one of the things I do think with Tolkien is that he probably like a postmodern feminist lens or even second wave feminism isn't very much on his gender. He probably was more familiar with uh, the first wave feminism. Um, where basically assume, um, a liberal subject for feminists who are trying to, you know, think get the right to vote and things like that. Um, he, I think he tends to be very much, he never comes out and says it, but my sense of token is that he was not a fan of social activism per se. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I, the idea that you could overturn the current social order by purely human or secular efforts is mm. kind of what Saruman does. And he, I mm. think mm. the idea of purely secular revolutions as being uh, a recipe for tyranny in a sense. I mean, he would have seen this with um, um, the, um, the Soviet revolution in 1919. Um, he would have seen this in very other ways. Um, but in a sense, he has a very Berky, conservative Burkean perspective on that. And so this idea of, you know, changing society through social activism, by purely secular efforts, I think he would have mm-hmm. thought is hubristic. So even in a first wave feminism sense, he's kind of orthogonal to that. Mm-hmm. Now he's sympathetic <laughs> to women um, mm-hmm. as, as part of his Christian background, but the assumptions that he brings to a text like Lord of the Rings, I think, just don't really work uh, well under any of the really major feminist paradigms that I know of. <laughs> so talking about feminism token, is, it's kind of tough in that
0: sense. Sure. This is something that uh, we did talk about a little last time with regards, again, to eldarion and Arendis. Do you think that's a sort of a later work, sort of a 60s work, and I, and I asked this of my co-host, do you think that some of that later work, perhaps eldarion and Arendis, some of the other post-Lord of the Rings material, do you think there's a sort of sense that there's perhaps a a growing awareness that, you know, in The Lord of the Rings, for example, the lack of women characters, you know, comparatively speaking, is a problem and that perhaps he's thinking about redressing that, for example, in the character Verendis and, and her perspective, or do you think that takes it a bit too far?
1: It's possible. Um, mm. I mean, I haven't re- re- read that particular text recently. Uh, my mm, sense sure. is yeah. that it, it might be easy to read things in Tolkien that we want to read in Tolkien.
0: Um, sure, as well, yeah.
1: and so I mean, yeah. we kind of want him to be, you know, pro-feminism and whatnot. And
0: mm,
1: whereas mm. he he has he has this one in one sense, he has this very universalist perspective. We are all equal under God. You know, men, women, rich, poor. I mean, that's a very ancient, ancient Christian tradition that I think he was very much in favor of. And so mm, he was certainly mm. not, um, you know, regressive in that sense. But in terms of the theoretical ideas that you know, you know, postmodern feminism or second wave feminism um, kind of promote, he was very much against those kinds of uh, mm. theories. And so, in one yeah. sense, it's, it's it's hard to say in that sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, and perhaps that's just a, a speculation from, from me. But um, in any case, yeah. So, so you know, we've we've sort of talked about about critical theory, but but as I mentioned before, and as you've sort of gestured towards. In this paper, you also make a make an argument, make a sort of positive argument for a Straussian reading or approach to Tolkien. So, first of all, as I said towards the beginning of the podcast, as an Australian, I'm not familiar with Strauss. So, who was he, and what is his philosophy about? And um, we'll start there, anyway. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, I might I might su- suggest I'm, I'm arguing more closely for maybe a Neil Straussian approach. Okay. Because um, yeah, sure. there's a lot of Strauss that I don't quite accept. That idea that there's like secret hidden meanings to texts. It's one of the things that I think is a little bit wonky about his writing. Um, right, yeah. Basically, Leo Strauss is this German-born political philosopher who was extremely skeptical of the historicist schools of thought that were promoted by people like Friedrich Nietzsche and Martin Heidegger. Um, And he was mainly interested in understanding classical political philosophy, especially Plato, as a way of resisting the wholesale relativism he saw as endemic to modern thinking. That is, rather than seeing individual subjectivity as something that's wholly determined by history, which, by the way, is something that Marxist theory tends to do. Mm -hmm. Strauss understood classical political philosophy as taking its orientation from what it understood to be as nature or the whole. For Strauss, this understanding of nature is very radical and critical because it resists what the many consider true by convention or by opinion or by tradition uh, in contrast a lot of modern critical theory tends to consider understand nature as something that's thoroughly regressive rather than radical and many forms of contemporary literary criticism to present uh, proceed under that assumption that nature is wholly bad and not useful at all it's one of the reasons why they tend to be so dismissive of Topian, who does seem to accept um something like a natural order of things but anyway, to make a long story short, what really makes Strauss interesting to me is the class clash he sees between ancient and modern political philosophy, and that's something that I think fantasy does really well. Because a token, a lot of fantasy is medievalist in orientation. Mediv- the Middle Ages were obviously pre-modern, and so epic fantasy really helps convey. Um, a new understanding of this clash between the ancient and the modern that Strauss talked about at
0: great length in his writings. Okay, so that that's fascinating, and, and I suppose it's long been noted by by Tolkien scholars, of course, that uh, Tolkien is kind of well, he's been called anti-modern. I suppose anti-industrial. You know, th- those sorts of uh, sorts of phrases are used of him. So, how do you think Tolkien, in particular, reconciles, or um, I don't know, um, engages with with that with that sort of um, ancient versus modern uh, sort of dichotomy, if you like.
1: Right. Well, I think there's elements of both in his writings. So yeah, Tolkien Mm. does have this reputation as being anti-modern and as Mm. Um, backward-looking. But there's actually been a lot of work on the modern aspects of Tolkien. Um, Tom Mm. Shippey comes to mind pretty quickly. The idea of um, an alliance of nations in the War of the Rings coming together for a common purpose, that's, that's modern. You don't get that in the Middle Ages. Um, the way mm-hmm. that you do in Lord of the Rings. So that's very modern. The idea that the the one ring can be addictive is kind of modern as well. Um, for my purposes, I tend to understand the ancient and modern conflict between ancient and modern in token as uh, a conflict between different regimes. In his writings. Mm-hmm. So you we, because we know his sources, um, we kind of know whether a particular polity is ancient or modern. So for the Shire, it's kind of based on a 19th century rural England that Tolkien remembers from his childhood. So that the Shire is modern. Uh, Lake Town is modern. Mordor and um, uh, Saruman's Empire, those are all modern polities. In contrast, mm-hmm. you get things like Rohan and Gondor and the Elves who are Hmm. um, pre-modern in a sense. And so one of the interesting things about the Lord of the Rings is that you have these hobbits who are modern types of people who leave the protected shire and go out into the wide pre-modern world of Gondor and uh, Rohan and all these other places, and they are improved by that experience. When the Hobbits come back to the Shire, everybody except Bilbo is nobler, braver. Um, um, they have the wherewithal to withstand Sharky's take over the Shire. Whereas I think Merry um, and Pippin would not have been able to do that had they not engaged in their adventures in Middle-earth. And so The Lord of the Rings is really this book where you have people from modern times interacting with people from pre-modern times and both are being improved by those experiences so one and so in that sense Tolkien is not anti-modern he's just saying we need to look at what is non-modern and figure out what we can learn from it and that's one of the more interesting dynamics i think that play at the lord of the rings
0: what what does sort of reading strauss i guess or how does how does his idea of this sort of modern versus ancient uh, political philosophy, how does that sort of play into what Tolkien is doing, I guess? Or how does that oh, clarify what Tolkien is doing?
1: Um, yeah, so, yeah, Strauss himself actually is a very enigmatic writer. Um, it, it's kind of hard mm. to pinpoint his views on any one particular subject. And so his whole discussion of ancient and modern is like, is wedged between discussions of different writers in various places in his work. So it's kind of hard to sort of tease um, out the nuances and pieces of that. But I mm. think the big thing with Strauss is that he liked the idea that classical political philosophy emphasized the idea that man is naturally a part of his polity. Um, the the Greek city polis for the Greek writers. But man is very much a member of his society naturally. And that is one of the innovations that modern political philosophy has kind of done away with. So if you look at, you know, the early early modern liberal theorists like uh, Locke and Hobbes, they say that man, you can extrapolate man out of civil society and into the state of nature. So basically they're saying civil society and nature are not the same. And that's kind of a radical innovation off of classical political philosophy because they didn't think you could make mm. that distinction. And so modern mm. liberalism is based on the idea that you can imagine mankind, um, the individual as being outside of his city, outside of his polity. Mm. And through a very complicated process uh, that basically leads to the idea of, you know, history is the ultimate ground of any ind- individual subjectivity. Um, you, if you have no way to understand humankind by nature, by mankind as being within a civil society, then how do you understand mankind? And you have to say that through history is the answer. And Strauss thought that led to a thoroughgoing relativism. So the thing that he liked about classical political philosophy is that it gives philosophers something to think about in terms of what is if something's not just convention, it's not just true by common opinion or by tradition, it's true in light of nature. And I think that's the kind of pre-modern orientation that Tolkien has. Right. Um, okay. And yeah. that's very much part of his Catholic worldview because Catholicism, mm-hmm. you could say, its thinking has been, in some sense, is very pre-modern.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. But you need to take your bearings, not by what humankind has made by its own efforts, basically history, but you need to take it in light of of the the truth in the universe in a way. And that's something Mm -hmm. that Tolkien and classical political philosophy tend to share in common Um, in terms of political viewpoints, um, the understanding politics. I think Tolkien is very much much more in line with classical political philosophy than he is modern political philosophy. Obviously, with characters like Saruman, he does not believe in uh, the, the idea of real politique as a <laughs> real driver of international relations. He just thinks that's fundamentally flawed. But if you look at people like Ergorn and Faramir, um, they're not people who insist on their rights. They're not democratic, but they are extremely virtuous. Um, yes, they're not ambitions. Yeah. They're not out for themselves. They basically fulfill the kinds of virtues that classical philosophers often said rulers should fulfill. And that is not a viewpoint that modern political philosophers tend to take. Uh, they might analyze modern politics in terms of power, or security, or, yeah. you know, mutual wealth and benefit. Um, they don't think about politics in terms of virtue. And that is where I think sure. Tolkien very sharply disagrees with modern thinking. Um, his political leaders are motivated by virtue. They're very virtuous people, and Aragorn and Faramir are good examples of that. And so that's where I think yes. Tolkien is very close to classical modern political philosophy as opposed to m- modern political philosophy. And that's something that Strauss hammers a lot within his own writings.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And do, do you think that some of that backlash, if that's the right word, during recent years as the Game of Thrones shows were, were coming out and being released perhaps, you know, at its base relates to a kind of cynicism about that approach to to politics? Because one of the, you know, one of the criticisms that, for example, Martin gives to Tolkien, which I think is, is fairly um, wrong-headed, is, oh, you know, we don't know what Aragorn's tax policy is and, you know, the implication being that as a ruler, you know, virtue is n- in, is insufficient, you know. It's this, as you say, this sort of modern idea, and, and of course, Game of Thrones itself is um, sort of all about the um, the iniquities of political leaders, in a sense, and the sufferings of the, you know, the common folk. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that perhaps explains also some some of that cynicism from Martin and, and his uh, his readers, some of his readers anyway, who are often quite vociferous, like, you know, vociferously opposed to Tolkien as well
1: yeah and i think the thing with martin i think this is true of a lot of the a lot of the writers whom we consider grimdark writers um Mm -hmm. martin steven erickson glenn cook um they tend to view politics in a very machiavellian light um Mm -hmm. uh the only you know the be more evil is basically what machiavelli (laughs) advises um virtue by itself according to machiavelli is useless um, you want to have a reputation for virtue, says Machiavelli, but you don't actually want to be virtuous. That is how you mm. fail drastically. Um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, and that is, I think, maybe the big difference between people who are following token and people who really disagree with his worldview. I think Machiavelli is maybe the political theorist who is most deeply ingrained into common sense nowadays. Um, yeah, yeah. Bokinu was very anti-Machiavellian He never really mentions them in the writings But you can tell nothing about the way politi- um, Political relations Are used in Lord of the Rings Is Machiavellian Saruman comes closest and he fails pretty Miserably um, He doesn't mm. really make a good effort at it um, mm. But a lot of fantasists like Glenn Cook Or Stephen Erickson or George R.R. R. Martin um, They really do accept that Machiavellian point of view And mm-hmm. One of the interesting things with Tolkien is that he is trying to revive a set of political assumptions where virtue rather than pure power is an important Mm -hmm. driver of politics. And that's just interesting because it is so counterintuitive nowadays, but it used Mm to be in pre-modern times the dominant viewpoint. Um, Classical political philosophy is all about virtue. Um, It doesn't talk about tax codes very much. Um, So this (laughs) idea that Tolkien is reviving a set of intuitions about political society that has disappeared from common sense today is one of the Mm, more radical mm. things that I think is true about him. And that's why I think he's – far from being regressive, he's just one of the more interesting writers intellectually there is. Mm, mm. But critics don't have the tools to understand what's really radical about Tolkien because they approach his text from a thoroughly modern perspective.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that's really interesting, um, and I, I see now um, where where Strauss yeah beco- becomes becomes salient, um, and and as you say, I mean even even in other other ways, uh, we've we've seen sort of, as it were, ancient ancient philosophical modes like Stoicism, uh, perhaps, and and, and uh, to some extent uh, Aristotelian Aristotelianism in its sort of ethical uh, forms sort of become popular and, you know, there are sort of self-help books written about Stoicism and how to be a Stoic and things, mm-hmm. you know, you, you've mentioned that that this is something that Tolkien is perhaps, you know, ought to be sort of, or you know, his work ought to, we ought to see his work in that light. Do you think that that's a new and interesting way to read Tolkien sort of in the context of, of our uh, modern modern world, not sort of therapeutically, but there's something enlightening in, I suppose, his approach to to politics and perhaps, in a more general sense, ethics—you know—often derided as a kind of banal tale between, you know, where good and evil are pitched, sort of in a, mm-hmm. <laughs> in a, in a sort of um, metaphysical struggle. But do you think there's a depth there that's, yeah, perhaps unrealized, I guess? Yeah, yeah, so, it, you know.
1: certainly. Um, mm. And really, in a sense, the way I approach literary criticism is not so much to see. You know, it's not like Tolkien could be like a self-help. Well, follow these virtues that he says are virtues, and then you'll you're be okay. You know, be like okay. Eric Horn, and think your life will be hunky-dory. Um, so that's that's not what I do. Um, but I think he's interesting because the assumptions that are inherent within the social and political orders of Middle Earth are just so thoroughly unusual from a modern perspective
0: that mm, that mm. they
1: help us understand what we consider to be assumptions that we don't Mm -hmm. understand. They help us see our assumptions that we don't realize our assumptions. For example, that Mm -hmm. Machiavellian point of view, the idea that nations um, are fearful of other nations and therefore must secure the most power by the most um, pragmatic means possible. That's very much a part of Martin and Cook and Erickson. Um, And it seems like it's common sense, but Tolkien helps us realize there, that's a sort of historical viewpoint that wasn't always the case, and so that idea that he can help us question certain assumptions we have is just very interesting. Yeah. Now, there's something yeah, about Tolkien yeah. I think he's really wrong about, um, sure. mm. but even when you're a writer's wrong, they can help you think about old questions in new ways, and that's what Tolkien yeah. does.
0: So I suppose I think we'll, we'll leave our discussion of Strauss there. Um, I think, you know, I think you've explained really nicely, you know, how that, how that can sort of perhaps help to enlighten some of Tolkien's sort of perspectives. But just to move on briefly to your other paper, and I know this, this wasn't a great segue, but I thought subject. it was very smooth. <laughs> I didn't even notice it
1: that way. <laughs>
0: yeah, indeed the the second paper i i sort of wanted to look at is is from a, a different journal tolkien studies which has sort of become the premier journal unfortunately I, I think you do need a subscription to to have a look at that but i will i will give the name of the article so it's from 2016 or the title i should say that's called the book of the lost narrator rereading the Silmarillion as a unified text so this article deals with this sort of broad theme which has become very uh sort of I don't want to say de rigueur, but popular in Tolkien studies in the last, I would say, ten or so years, and, and a number of scholars have written interesting papers. Papers on, it. and that is Tolkien is a kind of metafictionist. So, um, Tolkien is, uh, yeah, as a writer who is, um, you know, situating his text in some sort of some sort of historical context, and perhaps the you know, the well known example, of course, is the Lord of the Rings is you know, is said to be a kind of a redaction or, or some sort of compilation sort of constructed out of the Red Book of Westmarch, which, you know, in the secondary world, to use his his his, his phrase, um, you know, it w- was sort of a compilation, um, perhaps diaries and things produced by the Hobbits. You know, many, many, many uh, scholars, verlin Flieger, Michael Drought, Vladimir Berlyak, very various others have, have written, as I say, written on this, but you've... Produced a piece uh, which looks at the Silmarillion and sort of tries to argue that you know against this idea that uh, which some scholars have have put forward. Like I think Gergay Naj is one of one of the the main proponents of this idea. Uh, the Silmarillion is kind of a you know it's a bit of a hodgepodge of, of, of disparate right. sources um, that have right. sort of you know in, in this secondary world has been put together. And you've you've argued sort of no, we have to we, we should really see the Silmarillion as a kind of well, as the title suggests, as a unified um, text. So I suppose first, do you mind giving some sort of background on, on, on the paper and sort of why you felt sort of compelled to, to write it, I suppose? What was it about that, that sort of idea that, that we should sort of radically de right? I don't know, the, the sort of, um, the in, you know, in some sense? And what, what then, I suppose, do you think about, you know, how we should read the text? Uh, of, of the of the work as a kind of um in a kind of unified perspective
1: okay yeah um so actually first let me mention that if anybody is interested in an article and they don't have access to it um you can just email me i can send you a copy so even uh, if ultimately. it's behind a paywall just Email me. <laughs> i can get you a copy and that's not a problem but yeah so for that article about the similar as unified text um to be honest i don't have a fancy theoretical argument for that view Uh, It's simply how I (laughs) always Mm. read the 1977 Cimmerillion. And actually, the the unified view, that is one coherent text, not a hodgepodge of other things. That unified view is how most people did read the Cimmerillion when it first came out, Mm. before Christopher Mm. Tolkien started publishing the history of Middle Earth. And only Mm. then, Mm. after the history of Middle Earth, did everybody get a chance to see just how hard Christopher Tolkien had to work to wrest the Cimmerillion into its final form. Mm-hmm. But as necessarily as the history of Middle-earth has been for Tolkien scholarship, uh, it's not a page-turner, if, if you ever try to go through it. <laughs> um, it's interesting in its own right, but it's not going to you know keep you up until the wee hours of the morning. Um, the Cimmerillion itself is not an easy text, but the history of Middle-earth is much less easy. So for better yeah. or worse, in my view, the Cimmerillion, uh, the 1977 book, that's destined to be the book that most people think about when they think about Tolkien's legendarium, even if it mm. is a partial collaboration with his son Christopher. So basically my article on Tolkien Studies is just an attempt to affirm the central mm. status of the Silmarillion by suggesting that its purported flaws, They're, they aren't really flaws. They're just delib- mm. deliberate aspects imposed into that text by a hypothetical narrator. And really, okay. I don't think the argument is that far-fetched even though it wasn't Tolkien's original attention. Because even if Tolkien never originally intended to present his legendarium stories as a single, coherent, unified story, those stories were all still written by one person, Tolkien himself. So it's really not that hard to see Tolkien themes appearing over and over again in the 1977 Cimmerillion. So in that sense, I think it's kind of intuitive to read it as a unified text because it was written by one guy,
0: Tolkien. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that makes, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> do you think, uh, yeah, I suppose this, this gets into how we sort of approach, um, even, even the Lord of the Rings, but do you think approaching, uh, or as, as, for example, Michael Drought has, has argued, and, um, I believe will be arguing in greater detail in his upcoming book, you know, that we should really focus or, you know, place greater focus on the kind of, uh, the metafi- metafictional aspects of, for example, The Lord of the Rings um, and the Silmarillion, I guess, to an extent as well, you know, that that it is in some sense a constructed text of this secondary world and that, yes, we know that Tolkien wrote the text, but, you know, we should actually take the... Uh, the sort of metafictional conceit seriously we should you know we should read the the preface and the the note on the t- or whatever the note on shire records at the start of the lord of the rings and and that we should um you know that that should be a sort of important element of our reading and that therefore we shouldn't take everything in the text kind of as a literal as we might read a novel as a kind of literal uh chronicle of, of events for example that you know and you know and uh, I think Professor Drought, you know, often talks about the, the the poems, and you know, should we should we really believe that Sam, you know, recites this this poem about the troll or Gil or you know, should we should we sort of think about, um, you know, as a philologist like Tolkien might, should we should we approach the text as well? You know, perhaps this poem is a is a kind of interpolation of a later redactor or something like that, and that if you take that to, I guess, an extreme, it it, it can introduce a kind of radical. Um, uh, I don't know, like radical skepticism about about the events that we're reading about, even about the, even about the sort of you know, as we've mentioned before, the natural sort of hierarchy, if you like, that Tolkien mm-hmm. seems to hold so so close. So you know, that, that's a I guess increasingly interesting and, and um, common, commonly well at least commonly discussed idea in, in Tolkien studies. So do you think do you think Michael Drought is is right there, or would you sort of want to bring us back from that skeptical precipice?
1: <laughs> oh no. I I, I think he's mostly right
0: um, Mm -hmm. here and there, um, his his argument
1: as you summarized it. So I think Mm -hmm. from a practical standpoint, any practicing tokenist, you have to have an awareness that the text that we have, The Lord of the Rings, is is the mediated access to the reality of the War of the Rings. It's mediated Mm -hmm. in some way. It's not a perfect um, memetic representation of what happened in the War, the war of the Rings. Um, mm, it's, mm. it's too complicated for that because of the purported metafictional aspects of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, you can't mm. just ignore it. Um, mm. Although for my purposes, as, as in relation to Tolkien and the history of political philosophy, it's a little bit orthogonal. Um, mm, okay, yeah. Because I, I do think despite the metafictional aspects of Tolkien, Um, there, we have a pretty good sense of who he was as a person, as a writer and his various viewpoints, despite those metafictional aspects to him. And that's why one of your questions I saw is you're, you're sort of, how do we relate him to someone like Borges? And I don't think Tolkien relates very much to typical postmodern writers at all. Um, Mm, mm. The way I see it is like I like I said I have seen arguments that try to categorize Tolkien as postmodern in some sense. Uh, mm, mm. My sense is that they seem to want to praise Tolkien by linking him with a discourse that's currently prestigious within literary study, literary studies. Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But one that, that does not very well describe Tolkien's various viewpoints. So things like the appendices, the maps, and the prologue, um, even things like his unpublished book of Marsable. Um,
0: yes, the, from yeah.
1: the minds of Moria. Um, I, I, t- I do tend to see them as a way of reinforcing the believability of this fiction by cloaking, cloaking it within a modern scholarly apparatus. And this is something mm. that he would have been very familiar with as a philologist who's studying, you know, medieval cultures. You know, you don't have direct access to the past. You can only sort mm. of make educated guesses about it based on what has survived the surviving historical record. And so in that sense, um, he understands that there's problems.
0: Mm, For sure.
1: But what he does not do, I don't think, is I don't see Tolkien as seeing our problematic access to the past as emphasizing that reality is a social construction or that historical narrative can only resemble fiction rather than history itself. And that is what I see metafictionists like Borges or Tim O'Brien doing. Although Mm, metafiction mm. doesn't entirely equate to postmodernism, I don't see Tolkien as postmodern because I think in the end he believes in history. Maybe our access to that true history is problematic or complicated, Um, and maybe Mm. it's never going to be perfect. But that's more of a problem of transmitting historical knowledge to current times than it is a full-scale assault on what historical knowledge even means. And I do think a lot of postmodern metafictionists are trying to question the very idea of historical truth. I think Tolkien mm. was pretty much okay with that—the idea of historical
0: yeah. truth. Yeah, I agree, and, and and I think you know, as an archaeologist, I, I tend to I tend to side more with Tolkien. I mean, I need to anyway because I need to believe that there was you know some sort of past. <laughs> Although you know, I guess there's some archaeologists who who are sort of radical in that sense, but um, but yeah, I think that's just to return to the Silmarillion for a moment. You know, obviously the Silmarillion is is an is notoriously um, difficult, at least, you know, at least in popular, the popular imagination. And, of course, it begins with this with this creation story. And, and you mentioned, well, you know, Tolkien believes in history. But when we come to a text like the Silmarillion in the creation story and we're thinking about Tolkien as a metafictionist and, you know, I know at least in its published form the Silmarillion, um, you know, doesn't sort of, doesn't have that critical apparatus, at least, you know, as, as a kind of paratext um, quite so much. But, Sort of in, in my reading, at least of the Sumerian, it, it's fairly clear that this is kind of a text in the secondary world. You know that, that itself is is kind of mythology in the context of the secondary world, and that we shouldn't sort of necessarily take, for example, the Einalindelay, the creation story, as a kind of literal, you know, record of events. But when we come to those kinds of documents, and, and what what do you think? And you know, I understand perhaps for, for a lot of readers, perhaps that's a kind of a radical view because you know a lot of people will read the Sumerian as a kind of as a kind of key, you know, to Tolkien's theology and, you know, all sorts of other questions that the Lord of the Rings raise, raises. And they will simply point to some aspect in the Silmarillion and say, well, you know, this is what it says, therefore, you know, here's our answer. You know, do you think if we approach the Silmarillion as a kind of, in this metafi- from this metafi- fictional point of view, we can, you know, we can sort of question some of the, I don't know, the as, as you say, the, the kind of historical elements of it, given that given that the kind of genre that we're looking at in, for example, the Arnold Lindeley, you know, is, is clearly mythological
1: yes yes so so <laughs> in the story right. world you you think that we should sort of see the um a as being semi-fictional and fictionalized in a sense within the story world itself
0: yeah, yeah i think so i mean that's just how i read it because it reads to me so so obviously, as a kind of, in a genre sense, as a kind of mythological text, you know, analogous to um, Genesis, in in an obvious way, and perhaps I'm only saying this because you know I, I myself read, for example, biblical texts in that way, you know, and I'm not myself mm-hmm. religious, uh, <laughs> you know, which which perhaps is just is just a, a you know. A, a result of my perspective, then. Do you think that's going too far in in that sense? (laughs) Actually, that's an
1: interesting question because, I mean, there is a tradition of biblical literalism, of reading everything Mm. in the Bible as a literal record of the way things are, but usually Mm, from, mm. um, like, American evangelicals and some Protestant sects. um, I'm not really sure of the Catholic standpoint on it, but I think they're a little bit more open to a sort of metaphorical or more spiritual interpretation of things like the mm. book of genesis and so even sure. though we don't quite understand know if what books like genesis or the annual um a we don't even know if they're literally true but in a sense they're spirits spiritually or metaphorically true um, mm, they're, yeah. they're, they, they're they're a story that forms the meditation of, of on for modern faith in that sense and so mm. necessarily i don't think the question of the literal truth of the mythological stories in within Arda is not necessarily the most important question to ask, but how those mm. stories tend to be used by the characters within Middle-earth. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think for the mm-hmm. most part, I mean, you know, the elves, um, the men of Gondor, the men of Rohan, they tend to assume the truth of those stories, or at least they act under the assumption that those stories are true. And that's just part mm-hmm. of growing up within a certain tradition of thought. So in that sense, the literal truth of the creation story and the Silmarillion, within the story world itself, you know, that's kind of an open question. But I don't think you necessarily mm-hmm. have to believe in it literally within the story world for it to have a very concrete effect on how the characters in Middle-earth understand the world.
0: So I think at this stage we can bring the conversation to a close. Was there anything else? I guess you you wanted to, or you would like to say, you know, regarding the you know Tolkien as a metafictionist. This topic, you know, I think you've you've sort of summarized summarized your view in that in that paper. But yeah, was there anything I guess you wanted to wanted to mention or? No,
1: it's just um, the, the whole field of token studies right now is really robust. Um, it's really mm. moving along. Mm. And so it's really interesting to talk about these issues of where the field is going and what kind of changes yeah. are. So, you mentioned the idea of like um, the idea of a diverse token has been getting some steam in some circles. And, I, mm. you know, I think that the, that's a really promising new trend for the field. Um, mm-hmm. Although I do have some skeptical about some of the pre theoretical presuppositions that are um, Sure. that drive those particular readings. But the basic goals themselves, I think, are very laudable. And so understanding where the token field, of token studies are going to go in the next 10 years, it's just a really fascinating topic because there's so much research being done on token. So many different people from multiple countries, multiple continents are doing work on token. And so we really have a chance to see a lot of different perspectives on a single mm-hmm. writer, um, yeah,
0: yeah. That
1: we really don't get to see for any other writer I know about. Um, I don't, mm. I don't think produce, he who inspires so much criticism as Tolkien does across so many different languages and continents and countries.
0: Mm, mm, There's yeah, a Chinese no, I,
1: Tolkien Society for crying out loud.
0: I mean, he's yeah, everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't necessarily, you yeah. don't
1: see that for T. S. Eliot, you know, necessarily,
0: <laughs> or um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and 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 just anecdotally, it seems like in in Brazil and, and other places in South America, um, it seems oh, yeah. very popular as well. Yeah, well, I guess you know, just as a final question before I let you go, in the last few episodes of the podcast, we have we have talked a little bit about the Amazon show, and just just very briefly, I get I guess what what are your thoughts on on the Amazon show? And I, look, we don't know much about it, but it will be set as as I've said in the Second Age, and probably you know we're will we'll going to Numenor and uh, forging of the Rings and. Do you have any interest in that? First of all, uh, you know, is it, yeah. sort of adaptation interesting to you, or yeah?
1: Honestly, I have not been following the news whatsoever.
0: Um, <laughs> I, bad, yeah.
1: I, I'm keeping my my hopes absurdly low, so they won't be disappointed, <laughs> and so yeah, whatever yeah. whatever they produce will exceed my extremely low hopes. So I will be <laughs> pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Um, well, I it's probably, hope it's good. Um, mm,
0: hmm.
1: um, I was not a fan of the Peter Jackson films. I, I thought he was a little too, he, he had too many film making cliches when his, in his presentation. Um, mm-hmm. but I really like some of the things that Amazon has done. So, you know,
0: mm.
1: we'll see, we'll, we'll see how
0: it comes. No, I think I think that's a very a very reasonable position <laughs> at this stage. And as I've said, we know almost nothing about it apart from the setting. So you know they're they're being very very coy at the moment. But yeah, we'll we'll see. Well, look, thank you for coming coming on. Um, I think that was a fascinating discussion, and you know I certainly learned learn a lot about uh, about Strauss and. Um, you know, I'll be looking for. I know in your in the, in that paper, um, you do mention a few sort of uh, a few tentative, perhaps neo straussian readings that that uh, you know, if, if readers want to, or if listeners, I should say, want to want to go and read that paper. You know, you can you can also look up. But um, hopefully, we'll see perhaps more more of that. Are you sort of thinking about writing more in that in that space, perhaps? Oh, yeah, at Strauss, I am
1: working on my monograph right now, which is called oh. um, Specters of yeah. Tolkien
0: oh wow okay well i'm so currently be... working on that at the moment that's awesome i shall i shall definitely get that when it when it comes out very good and where where can people sort of find you if they're interested in um having a look at some of your some of these papers that we've talked about and, and as i said there are there are quite a few others as well and not only on Tolkien, but you know various other uh, literature related topics
1: well my my website is denniswilsonwise.net um, so that's my academic website. You can look up my CV, anything else. Um, if you see anything that captures your interest, my email is on my website as well. And you can just contact me at any point. Um, you can Google me I'm on my university of Arizona department, uh, faculty page. So I show, show up that way on Google. Um, but yeah, you just Google me. Uh, like I said, my <laughs> website is uh, denniswilsonwise.net, but, awesome. um, Fantastic. I'm pretty open to email, so it doesn't matter to me. <laughs>
0: all right well fantastic well thank you uh dennis for coming on i think uh you know as i said i learned a lot so that was that was a great discussion so um all the best and i will eagerly await your monograph
1: (laughs) thank you so much benjamin it was a real pleasure um chatting with you today from half a world away
0: (laughs) indeed yes um all right well we'll have a good evening and uh yeah we'll 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 uh Watch your career with great interest, as Senator Palpatine would say. <laughs> All right. Thank you so All much. Right. All right.